And welcome to Aviation United by Aviation Zero. I'm delighted to be chatting with speaker, author, playwright, performer, and coach, and a woman who has an autobiographical solo show in development off Broadway, where she plays 40 different characters, Christina Helena. How are you doing today, Christina? I'm doing wonderful. It's so nice to be here with you today. Thank you for oh, having me. Stop it. You don't have to, you don't have to be all nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> So where are you at this moment in time in the planet? Make, make the listeners jealous. So where are you right now? Right now, I'm in Detroit, Michigan. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. What, what's in Detroit, Michigan? Because the last time I spoke to you, you were in, uh, was in New York? I was in New York. Yeah. I spend my time between Detroit, Michigan and New York City. I live in Manhattan. But during COVID, it was, you know, the silver lining and everything, right? Yes. I, I focus on that all the time. A lot of my family lives in Michigan, so I took the opportunity to come to Michigan and spend time with them since I think we all have time. That's the one thing we all received from COVID uh, in a sense that was a blessing within the wild sadness of it all is time. And yeah. I've chosen to spend a lot of it with my family. And what's Detroit like? I mean, all I can remember is um, Eddie Murphy and Beverly Hills Cop. That's <laughs> correct. So what's, what's it like? You know, Detroit is kind of like, I think what is quintessential, a quintessential image of America, very suburban. You have that, um, a lot of automotive companies yeah. are here, lots and lots and lots of, it's kind of like Motor City and it's really nice. It's really beautiful. There's a lot of, there's a lot of parks and a lot of trees and it's so different from New York. I'm so used to being in the con concrete jungle that I come to Detroit. And I'm like, Oh, I forget people have grass in their backyard. <laughs> this is so nice. Oh, we like the concrete jungle. We do. I mean, you can, Me you, too. We, we spoke about this before the podcast started. I mean, Christina, um, she starred in a, uh, in the, and in, in one was one episode of sex in the city. One episode of sex in the city. My role was so, so small. And as a matter of fact, it got completely edited out in editing. And that's actually very normal. Oh, that was nice <laughs> to producers. <laughs> um, well, you know, sometimes you have to cut an episode to a particular amount of time. Sometimes you thought it was going to work for the scene, but then ultimately in the editing room, it doesn't. Sometimes you rewrite a script and you decide to just cut that entire scene, even though you've spent days filming it. And I would know this because I'm also a writer. I write... Um, I write plays predominantly, but I'm constantly cutting things that I thought were going to end up in a final project or a final draft. And sometimes I'll do one performance and I'm like, yeah, that monologue's got to go. It just doesn't work. <laughs> so it's not until, you know, creativity is su super interesting. It's not until you try something creatively, especially in storytelling, that you know whether or not it works or it doesn't work. And I think on that day, <laughs> my happen. super, 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 super <laughs> microscopic <laughs> little parts just wasn't happening. Huh. And would, would that would it, would it be on YouTube? Would we, see, would we find it on YouTube? You can't find it anywhere. I never made it to the oh, final cut. <laughs> so disappointing. Anyway, we can, we can hope. We, There's we other can things to find on YouTube, though. <laughs> so there's no problem. There's well, ample we amount of things. Wrong, we can. So can you tell our listeners now a little bit about your background? Yeah. So I've 
been a creative the majority of my life. I've been a playwright and a performer in New York City. Currently, I'm in development on my autobiographical. You see, it's hard for me to say too. Autobiographical oh, yes. solo show scar. <laughs> it <is>. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's actually been a wild, beautiful experience. I wrote my personal story about how I became one of the youngest pancreatic cancer survivors into a play but I play all 40 characters. So it's like a one woman show. I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to see something like that, but it's super fun. It's definitely very fun and exciting for the performer because you get to transition in and out of all these different worlds and different characters while you're storytelling your own personal story. So it can be wild. I'm also a coach. Uh, I think of myself more of an empowerment coach because the majority of the work that I do is I work with people to help empower them and change their belief system and recalibrate their mindset in regards to things that really fall into one category, resilience and self-love. Um, I've created a platform called My Scar is Sexy, which is very much about ownership. It's about ownership of your own self. I have a blog and I have a book, a memoir that I'm currently developing, but we can talk about my scar is sexy a little bit later, <laughs> but really what I really want to tell you about, it's about self-ownership and that's what I really help my clients, my coaching clients with. Come to a place where who you are, what you are, what you've been through is all okay and it doesn't erupt shame in you any longer and that can be part of who you become. And then I'm also a speaker um, that I really love tremendously. I love being in the room with other humans and sharing my personal story with other people about how I became the youngest pancreatic cancer survivor because it's a pretty wild story. <laughs> I almost got arrested during the process. Oh, wow. Okay. Please, yeah. please tell more. <laughs> well, I, I got sick one night. And I just wasn't feeling well. I had this really bad chest pain. And it was the type of pain that most people would ignore. And I've had that pain since then. It's kind of like that pain you get when you have acid reflux, right? It's just like, yeah. ugh, uncomfortable. But it's not something that's going to alert you and make you feel like, I'm dying. I have to go to the hospital right now. We get aches and pains in our bodies all the time. But this pain, this particular moment, it was so sharp that I kind of like hunched over and fell to the ground. And I had an out-of-body experience in that moment, which was super wild. But that whole experience just did something to me. I thought, uh-oh, this is really bad. And I had that thought of a moment, just like it was a split second. But the best thing I ever did in my entire life is to listen to that. The next day I went to a doctor who checked my heart, said I was fine. Uh, well, that wasn't good enough of an answer for me. I was like, no, what happened was serious. It, was, it might have been small and minute, but that was not okay, it was not normal. I went to another doctor, they said I was fine. I went to a third doctor, they said I was fine. I went to a fourth doctor, they said I was fine. Now, mind you, I'm 19 years old. I have just recently finished high school. I'm in my senior year of college. And 
I was an athlete my entire life, super healthy. On paper, I'm not the girl that's going to get sick statistically. Right. And I got that. I understood that. I went to my fifth doctor, which happened to be the first doctor. I just went to him again. And I said, listen, no one can figure out what's wrong with me. I'm telling you, something is seriously wrong with me. I'm dying. And I used those words. And he turned around and said to me, you're not dying, Christina. You're psychosomatic. You just think you're sick. It, it's, it's nothing. And in that moment, I felt ignored. I felt invisible. I felt judged. And I'm also 19 years old. I have no experience with the medical industry. I have no experience with illness. I don't even really know how to communicate with doctors. I don't know what medical words to use. I don't know where to tell them to check. All I know is I have a pain right here in my chest and I can show them where it is and I can show them where their pain travels. And I can't even tell you what organ is in that part of my body. But when he said that I was psychosomatic and made, you know, I interpreted that as a adolescent hormonal teenager as <laughs> you think I'm crazy. Yes. And I had a very big problem with that. And perhaps it's, you know, my Mediterranean Greek blood that was just like, oh, no, 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 no. I am not crazy. I'm telling you I'm sick. So in that moment, another great thing that happened was my adolescent hormones we're just going to be stubborn and perhaps borderline bratty. And I refused to leave his office. And he went off to help some other patients. And then he kind of came back through the examination room. And he's like, you're still here? And I said, yes, you don't seem to understand. Something is seriously wrong with me. And if you don't figure it out, I'm going to die. And then we had a little bit of a, what I like to call a professional bicker. Um, he kept saying I was okay. I kept saying that I wasn't okay. At some point he said, if you don't leave, I'm calling security. I said, go for it, call security. Because at this point, I'm terrified. Yeah. I'm doing all of this because I'm a 19 year old who's just absolutely terrified. And everyone around me justifiably has nothing to say about me being sick. They're like, no one can find anything wrong with you. We've checked and checked and checked. So the only thing I'm going with is my gut and my intuition, which everyone around me thinks is crazy. And when I just didn't move, when I told him to call the police and call security, it kind of did something to him. My conviction did something to him. And I kept begging him for a CAT scan. I said, you need to CAT scan me. And I had no idea what a CAT scan was, mind you, right? Yeah. Um, my boyfriend at the time had mentioned it. His father had received CAT scans, so he was aware of them. I think I have heard of it on TV, but did I ever register really what a CAT scan is? No, you don't need to know what a CAT scan is at 19 years old. <laughs> so he, you know, we... We negotiated. <laughs> I negotiated with the doctor and we settled on these two other tests, an ultrasound and an upper GI. And I had no idea what any of these were, but I thought to myself, you're getting something, just take it and keep fighting. So that was all on a Friday. The next morning, Saturday morning, I had an ultrasound done. Ultrasounds on average take anywhere from 20, 30 minutes. Mine took three hours. And that was my first moment where I think I took a breath. 
because I said they found it. No one told me they found it. I could tell they found it. You know, when I kind of grew up just being a very observant child, and because I know in the medical industry they can't tell you anything, the doctor has to tell you things, the technicians are not allowed to tell you anything, and I respect that. But also, even if they did tell me, I don't know that I would understand. I had no idea what cancer cells were. I had no idea how they multiplied. I had no idea what a pancreas was. I learned to try to get information by watching their physical behavior. And this ultrasound technician was white as a ghost. I mean, she was speechless. And I just kept watching her and she couldn't even speak speak to me. She couldn't even look me in the eye. And I thought, well, whatever you just figured out, it's bad because your entire body language is not okay. And that was actually really good for me because it prepped me. I didn't expect later that day, later that day, I mean, gosh, it was not even an hour later um, to find out that I had pancreatic cancer and six months to live. Can I ask, uh, the, I mean, you, you mentioned previously, you know, you, you had, it was like chest pains and you, you, you know, kind of similar to maybe somebody that has maybe reflux or something like that, where yeah. and you had this out of body experience. Um, I mean, are they normal symptoms to have for somebody that, that may have pancreatic cancer? I mean, go back as well. Like what is the pancreas? Yeah. For, for somebody like, well, like me, who's an idiot. <laughs> well, you're not an idiot <laughs> because if you're an idiot, then I was an idiot at 19 because yeah. I had, I had never even heard of the pancreas, let alone not even know what it does. And the pancreas is one of your digestive organs and it hides sort of like behind your stomach around near your stomach. The pancreas really has two jobs. It makes enzymes and those enzymes, digestive enzymes, they go into your duodenum, which hello, there's another organ. I had no idea what it does. <laughs> and these digestive enzymes go into your duodenum and that's where all your digestion takes place. So the food comes from the stomach, goes into the duodenum, the pancreas makes some enzymes, puts them in the duodenum, the liver is making some bile, sends it to the pancreas, excuse me, the gallbladder, which is basically a storage facility. And the gallbladder regulates your bile, which dumps it into the duodenum. And that's kind of like the grand central station of digestion. It all just digests right there before it moves into the small intestine. So your pancreas is responsible for creating the digestive enzymes, which help break down your food. And it's also responsible for making hormones such as insulin, which help regulate your sugar, your fats and your starches. So really, it's a really important organ for digestion to really help facilitate that process for you. And as far as symptoms go, here is the scariest thing about pancreatic cancer. Its nickname is the silent killer. Right. The reason for that is because there are barely any symptoms. And you don't, one of the main symptoms is jaundice, where you start your, you know, one of the first symptoms of jaundice is that you start, your skin starts to turn yellow. And if it's ignored, it starts to turn like more and more yellow. And that is, how often a lot of people find out they have pancreatic cancer because their skin starts to turn yellow. It's obviously odd. So they go to the hospital and then they discover it. Apart from chest pain, I had no symptoms. 
And the type of chest pain that I had was because the tumors were so large, they were pressing against my organs and my, you know, my nerves, and it was creating sort of the sharp pain in my body. But that pain is the same as having acid reflux. So one of the things that a lot of people who have pancreatic cancer get misdiagnosed with is acid reflux. And that's a super easy thing to resolve. You know, there's so many over-the-counter medications that you can take or, you know, stop eating onions and peppers. So it's, <laughs> it's scary. It's really, really scary that pancreatic cancer can be multiplying and, you know, just creating havoc in your body and you have no idea. I'm sure, you know, I really don't know. Um, I can't know, but I must, those tumors must've been inside of me for years. And if it wasn't for my instinct and my intuition and my ferocious, ferocious, I don't want to say ability, but desire to actually listen to my body. I really listened to my body. Um, I would have never found this until it was super, super too late. Was this normal behavior for you as a 19 year old? I mean, have you ever done something like this before where, you know, you're, you're very stubborn, you're very focused that you said, you know, no, I want to get, I want to get further investigation. Was this normal for you or because it was unusual and you had this kind of out of body experience was, you know, you're, you know, Christina, we need to sort this out. Was that the mentality? I think it was both. I think, yes. Um, in general, I'm a, I'm a pretty, I, I desire to know things. So when something's off, like I love to investigate and like learn more. I'm like, wait a minute. No, no, no. Back up. What's that about? Like, I like to know things and I'm Greek. So absolutely stubborn. Um, and <laughs> so I no think, comment. yes, I'm a very curious wants to get to the bottom of things, love the truth type of person. So yes, I'm naturally like that, have always been like that. But I do think also having that moment where I had a bit of, I had a not a body experience and I heard in my mind, I heard how I heard it. I don't know. I don't know what I, what it was exactly. I can't really identify it, but you know, the closest thing that comes to literature that I can make sense out of is an NDA, a near-death experience. And I basically heard you're sick, you're dying, and if you don't do something about it, you're going to die. And that scared me, right? I don't know if any of your listeners have ever had moments where you feel something, you hear something, and you either associate it to your instinct, your impulse, God, your soul. I don't know. I think a lot of people have different definitions for it. I'm also somebody that has had a lot of those things happen to me often. So I know when that happens to me, when something unexplainable happens to me, I don't judge it. I've learned to listen to that and that that can actually be more truthful, more honest, and more direct than anything my brain wants to manipulate into truth. And because I had had other experiences like that, when I had that in that moment, when I had that pain in my chest, I think it was definitely the game changer because I listened. And not only did I listen, 
I was stubborn enough to keep pushing for an answer when everyone else told me I was fine. You know, most people will probably go to two, three doctors. And if the doctor says, no, you're fine, I encourage everyone to get, uh, you know, a second, um, a second look at anything a doctor says to you. Not that doctors are bad or wrong, quite the contrary, but they're also human. And um, it's so important to get a second and third opinion on things that involve surgery and cancer and major medical treatment. But at one point, you know, is a three, a three answers enough? Probably. And why were three not enough for me? I don't know. <laughs> why were four not enough for me? I don't know. There was something within me that was not going to give up until I found it. And um, it got really scary for me because even at some point I was like, gosh, Christina, four doctors have said you're fine. And there was a part of me that's like, no, 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 they're all wrong. They're all wrong. They're all wrong. So I think well, every thank, individual. Thank God you actually, thank God you followed through. I mean, what, what, your, what your heart was telling you, you know, yeah. to get forward investigation. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. And that's an individual, that, that's an individual relationship every individual has with themselves, right? Yeah. So everybody, I think it's so important to know yourself, which is what I do with my clients. I help them really get to their authentic self instead of the self that has been that has become because of everything that's happened to them. And, you know, I often say, who are you if you're not the imprint of all the things that happened to you? And I think it's really important to know who that is, because if we all just operate in the world based on everything that's happened to us, we have these walls and defense mechanisms and these beliefs that are not authentic, that are just there because of things that have happened. And ultimately, in situations like this, you need to know who you are, really, because you are the only advocate for yourself. How, Christina, did you feel? I mean, you spoke there eventually, you know, you, you got the information to say that, you know, six months to live um, and you had pancreatic cancer. How, how did you feel when you found out? Kind of the same of, as how I'm feeling right now, right? It just, yeah. it, it takes the words out of my breath. Like, if I go back to that moment, which is pretty much impossible to not be able to go back to that moment, that's one of the moments in my life that is always within me, always with me, and I will never be the same since then. Um, I can never go back to being Christina before that moment, nor do I want to. It took my breath away. Even to hear you ask me that question, I have to tell myself, oh, yeah, you did go through that. Because it's like so shocking. It makes no sense to the person who thinks, oh, I'm 19. I'm going to live till I'm in my 90s. Both my grandmothers did, of course. You know, that. I'm, I'm too young to think about death. I was speechless. I was shocked. I was numb. But because Christina is, you know, I am, I was an athlete my whole life, so I was naturally competitive and ferocious. I pretty immediately went into fight or flight. Yeah. And uh, survival. 
And that was really helpful and really good for the moment. It also brings up some interesting things, which is exactly what my TED talk, my TEDx talk is about. Facing your mortality is something that well, nobody really, most people don't want to think about. Most people don't want to talk about. And most people think it happens, you know, I always say after 70, it's fair play. Yeah. <laughs> you know, after 70, it's fair play. You've had a good anything run. You get, you've had a good run after 70, you know, up to 70. Anything after that, it's like, okay, you know, it's sad, it's hard, but you made it to 70. Wonderful. 19-year-olds don't think about their death or their mortality. Uh, most people don't think about it. It's, it's petrifying. And it's the one thing we all have in common. We are all going to die. Yeah. And to hear that I had six months to live as a 19-year-old, being faced with everything I wanted to do, everything I wanted to see, everything I wanted to say, everything um, that I had not said, right? It's one thing to think about what would I do if I had 24 hours to live, six months to live. It's another thing for the time clock for somebody to press the button and you start to watch it run out of time because humans are amazing at bullshitting themselves. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Me included. And there's nothing that calls you out on your bullshit more than watching a time clock run out of time. Yeah. It's... You can't, you know, and in that moment, I, I'm standing in the middle of my driveway at my parents' house thinking, Christina, you can't bullshit the soul. And everything that I had suppressed, everything that I hadn't done, everything I hadn't said that I wanted to came right up in like a millisecond. It was like this quantum physics equation running in my brain at the speed of light. And I, 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 again, really hard to go through, hands down one of the best moments of my life. Because once you survive, you can't forget you had that. Oh, and you will try. I tried. I tried for years to like forget that I had that moment, forget that I saw sort of everything that was truth. But ultimately, you know, having a near-death experience allowed me to live. You know, my TEDx talk is called Dear Unresolved Soul. It's not death you fear. It's life. I feel that this thing, death, is so hard to understand. We have so many questions about it. We don't get a cheat sheet or the cliff notes prior to it happening. Uh, we have a lot of opinions, thoughts, <laughs> and sometimes convictions about what it is, which I find really funny to have a conviction about death, apart from just the fact that it happens. And it's unknown and it terrifies most of us. It still terrifies me sometimes. Yeah. But I think we avoid it. We avoid thinking about it. We avoid preparing for it. We avoid accepting it. And by we do that because if we did, we would actually have to live. We would actually have to experience love, right? And death takes all of that away. Death is going to take all the happiness away. It's going to take love away. It's going to take your family away. It's going to take everything away because once it happens, it's over. And as a form to like fight back against death, well, then I'm just not going to live. Then I'm just not going to love. Then I'm just not going to be happy because if you are all those things, the reality is 
we live in this groundless existence where it could all go away. And I think the easiest example is like heartbreak, right? We've all been, I mean, maybe not all, but I feel most people have been heartbroken, broken up with a boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, went through a divorce. And that's kind of, that's kind of the same feeling, right? When you like love and then it's taken away from you. It's like gut-wrenching. Death does the same thing on every category. And it's like, well, death, I know you're coming and, and you're going to take it all away from me. So I'm just not going to live. You're not going to have the best out of me. And that was the big lesson I learned. That I wasn't afraid of death. I was lesson. afraid of life. I was afraid to live. Because... I think we innately know as humans, it can all be taken away. But what's the point? No. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, I think, I mean, the biggest heartbreak I've had so far, and this is me being sarcastic, is uh, my hair going gray. But that's a, different, <laughs> that's a different story altogether. No, no, you're right. I mean, it, it's we have to live life. And um, I, I do wonder sometimes myself, I mean, I, I haven't been through what you've been through, but when when I see so many opportunities out there to do things in life, you know, to do exciting things, whether it's like jump out of an airplane or, or, you know, fully embrace romance or love um, and just to experience it. And I, I find now it's, it's, it's very hard to see that because everybody's on their phones and it's more interaction on the phone than actually with the individuals. But um, that's just a sidetrack anyway. But what about a support? What support did you have um, going through this? Did you have family? Were, were, were the hospitals good? Did oh, the- yeah. Yeah, my family. Absolutely. My family. You know, I was living in New York City going to college at the time. But um, in that moment, again, I knew that whatever this was, it's bad. It was really bad. And I needed my family. So this happened at two in the morning. I was on a plane at 6am connecting through Columbus, Ohio, because I took the first flight out. I said, get me to Detroit ASAP. I don't care how you get me to Detroit. Now you don't need to take two flights to get to Michigan. But at that moment, I was like, I want to be the first flight landing in Michigan. And then I went to that doctor just a couple hours I landed from landing. You know, it's also that, you know, when you get an impulse to do something and sometimes, maybe often, you just ignore it. Oh, I'll do it later. I won't do it. But then you ultimately don't get to it. You don't do it. And sometimes we have to take some of these impulses and moments. Um, and maybe I've just become really good at being like in emergency situations. I've, I sometimes know, I knew in that moment that if I didn't get up, book a ticket that moment, get on a plane, fly to a different state, I would make an excuse for it. I would make an excuse and say, no, the pain was just something else, no big deal. And again, I think that's when like our body, our soul, really, I think it's more like our soul, right? The part of us that is divine, the part of us that is connected to the collective and God, whatever your belief system, collect, connected in general is the word. And when those impulses come up for the human spirit, I would be the president of this club. You must follow it. Even though it makes no sense, even though it probably goes against norm and cultural norms, our bodies, our spirits are intelligent. They talk to us. And I think we, our brains, 
and sort of, you know, us wanting to belong within the compounds and the, the, uh, the range of society, sometimes talk ourselves out of things, but we need to listen to those impulses because had I not listened to that impulse, I wouldn't have gotten on a plane. I wouldn't have gotten home and I needed to go home. I knew I needed to go home so I can have support. So I could be with my family. And I had a phenomenal, phenomenal group of doctors. I still text <laughs> every right. so often with my surgeon, you know, like I think the world of this human being, not only because he saved my life, but I, I have such a great respect for doctors, nurses, anyone and everyone that works within the medical industry because they are service. They help other human beings in the most beautiful way. They help us live and be well. And my, I think about my surgeon, like what that must have been like for him. And I know he's a professional and he's an excellent surgeon, but I often think about him because most people who get pancreatic cancer, cancer, excuse me, are later in life, I think predominantly in their 50s. You know, it was really odd, odd for me to need a Whipple surgery where they remove five of my organs and then reconstruct and put together my digestive system with whatever's left. And the thing about Whipple surgeries is there's no two Whipple surgeries that are the same because it all depends on how big your tumors are, where your tumors have grown, over what other organs have the tumors grown. So it's kind of like an avant-garde piece of art, right? Yes. You open up a patient and you're taking a look inside. You're like, okay, these organ, her tumors are over these five, six organs. Everything that has been infected by a tumor must be removed. Uh, and that is to say that the patient in regards to pancreatic cancer is even in a state that is operable, right? When you have pancreatic tumors, you're either operable or inoperable. I was operable. I caught it super early on. Like, I don't know what stage at the time. They didn't even give me a stage, but I was very lucky. I was extremely lucky. I still am extremely lucky. I caught it at a time where it did not infect my blood. It had infected other organs. It had spread quite a bit in my abdomen, but it was in a sense localized to my abdomen. So they could operate on me, do some radiation, minor and you know i would be okay and so i think about my surgeon what is it like for a surgeon to have a 19 year old who has her entire life ahead of her and lying on a table and it's your job to save her that to me i mean that man will um it can bring me to tears right now he will always be like number one in my book because to be a surgeon, to be able to do that, to be able to put your emotional self to the side and save a human being's life is like deeply honorable. And uh, I admire the hell out of it. <laughs> I could never do it. I can barely get my blood drawn still. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm blown away by doctors, surgeons, nurses, and the staff that works in the hospital. You know, it, it starts from the person you check in with and you know, how, wonderful and nice and helpful they are because a whole other side to, you know, treatment is health insurance. Don't get me started. You know, paperwork, co-pays, payment, insurance premiums, 
Don't get me started. Oh, we could be here for hours if we get into a conversation about healthcare and health insurance. So, can I ask you then, Christine? How, well, firstly, we, we well, you've informed us or told the listeners, myself, that you you heard the news you had cancer when you were nineteen. So, how old are you now? If you know, I know I shouldn't ask a lady her. You should her never. Age. We can all Google it. <laughs> we are going to jump right over this. <laughs> <laughs> we can all Google it. <laughs> you know, actually, people do Google that. Um, I'm surprised how many people want to know my age. <laughs> but we're going to jump right over this. Okay. If, you're, if you're going to find out, I suppose you're just going to have to put more work into it. Okay, well, we'll find out. I'll let everybody know. But, uh, well, okay, if you're not going to answer that question, so how are you now? I'm fantastic. I'm very well. I'm healthy. Um, you know, it took my doctors years to convince me that we didn't need to check for cancer every year. You know, my doctor's like, you're good, girl. You're in the clear. Now, in the clear means, yeah, I have to check. I check often. I am super proactive with my health. Um, and that's a big pet peeve of mine. I think patients need to be proactive about their health. It's not the doctor's job to keep you healthy. It's the doctor's job to help you accentuate your health um, and be better. But I'm a super proactive patient and I take really good care of myself. Everything I know that I should be doing to stay healthy, I do it. I do it. It's my job to stay healthy and I feel really good. I, you know, missing five organs is, um, it's not the end of your life. It has accentuated and made my life better, that, that lesson and that experience. There are hiccups every so often. Sometimes I get tummy aches, but it's nothing that can't be maintained and fixed. So I'm super blessed. I am super, super blessed to be alive. You, you look so healthy. I mean, for our listeners here, I'm on your website, uh, christinahelena.com. And when you look at your photos, there's, you know, stereotypically, um, when you hear uh, somebody has gone through what you've gone through, you don't look as as good or as healthy as what you do on on in your in your photographs. So that's that's a testament to yourself. So uh, so well done. I mean, thank you. Hats off. Everything's thank off. You. Hats off. <laughs> Yeah. Photoshop does amazing things, doesn't it? I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. You should see my Photoshop there. I need to get Steven Spielberg and all the best editors to really improve it. Like, you know, Michael Bay, all the top directors try their best, but unfortunately... You know your director is excellent. Oh, really yeah, good movies. choices of artists. I love my movies, I do. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's just very, very, very good. So let's move on then to... Um, my scar is sexy. I mean, yeah. my scar is not sexy, but why not? It's not. I mean, I have a couple of moles removed, and unfortunately, they're not very sexy. But what is what is my You're missing scar the sexy? point. You're missing the point. <laughs> this is why I need to tell you what my scar is sexy is about because you're missing the point. Well, you can tell me what is the point. <laughs> yeah, my scar is sexy is about ownership, right. and I had this moment in my life. I'm one of there's another talk that again, I'm super blessed it went bananas. And this is kind of how I knew my scar is sexy needed to evolve into more things. It became at first it was a talk that I gave and I was just sharing my experience, but now it's evolved into 
a memoir. I'm writing a book about my story, a blog, and also an online course that I use with my clients or other clients can choose to do like a self uh, program, which is going through an online course. And Mike Scar is Sexy really was birthed out of a moment where I was told that no one would love me and that I wouldn't be lovable or that I wouldn't find a partner and get married one day because I had a 13 inch scar across my body that I kind of needed to settle because perhaps the scar made me less than, you know? And I heard this when I was at this point, 20 years old, I had had the Whipple surgery and it was several months after that experience. And my birthday kind of happened during this entire Whipple surgery. So I went from 19 to 20 and that whole experience, um, best birthday of my life. I call it my rebirth birthday <laughs> because I essentially was given a second chance at life. And in that moment, somebody said, um, you wouldn't have all these things. And, you know, I don't judge the person for saying that because they were young, they were scared. Um, they were dealing with my mortality. This was a boyfriend I had at the time. And he was also dealing with facing my mortality. He was having to deal with scary things. He was 21. I mean, what on earth do we know at 21 years old, right? Lovely. Not a lot. Mm -hmm. And we were so in love. We were that quintessential, like, or at least from my perspective, <laughs> we were super in love and that like, Romeo and Juliet, and I just adored him. And I understand like why he would say that because he was afraid of losing me because he had just faced my mortality. So it wasn't that he said that to be manipulative or mean, even though it sounds 100% manipulative. Yes, the statement is manipulative and mean, but that wasn't the intention. And I understood that. So let's put that to the side. That's a bit of a disclaimer, I suspect. But what scared me the most is that when he said it, I believed it. Right. I said to myself, yep, that's true. And in that moment, I thought, uh-oh, because here's, here's that part of me again, right? I spoke about this earlier. That part of us that, um, you know, James Hillman calls it the daemon, not demon, daemon. <laughs> and I call it the soul, right? That, that part of you that is divine and connected. My soul said to me, oh, that's interesting. You think it's ugly. Wow. That's what you think about yourself. We all have these little moments and the crevices of what we tell ourselves, but the truth of what we think about ourselves kind of tries to find the light. But as humans, we're so good at suppressing that stuff that it's really hard to see it. And every so often through the cracks, it will, because it's constantly trying to push its way out and say, no, 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 you're not actually that confident. These are the things that you struggle with, right? And I had one of those moments. And my soul was like, oh no, I'm not letting you get away with this. You're gonna see yourself right then and there. And I saw myself and I was um, heartbroken, not by what my boyfriend said at the time. Because in the moment, I got it. I, I had no idea how to support him Quite frankly, I didn't have the energy to support him or anyone around me. I was really dealing with a lot of stuff, facing my death, my mortality, my body aching, missing five organs. I was hunched over for a good nine to 10, 11 months. 
um, I was hurting. I mean, I could actually tell you, I know what it feels like to feel gutted. And, but it's, I was heartbroken by my own self-opinion of myself. And I took, I guess, I don't know that I was so conscious of it, but I took like a spiritual oath in that moment to become the woman that did not think her scar was ugly. Ownership. And it took me a long time because the reason I thought my scar was ugly, or not that I believe that 100%, that's bullshit. I didn't believe it 100%. But there was a percentage of me that was like, oh, maybe, maybe it is, right? It wasn't 100% ownership, my scar is sexy, perhaps like the way it is now. And I took like a spiritual oath. I said, you're not going to stop becoming, not that you should ever stop becoming, until you truly, without conviction, become the woman that believes her scar is sexy. And that meant that I had to go back and dig up what in my life, what else in my life had created that belief system within myself to have that thought in that moment about the scar. That took a lot of healing, time, years. I know people hate hearing that, but it takes years. There's no quick fix on personal development and healing yourself. So my scar is sexy is about what I learned during that time of going back, digging all of it up. And yes, in this, in this case, I will use the word demons, right? Digging all the demons up and saying, okay, let's have a dinner party. And everybody gets to <laughs> express themselves <laughs> and everybody gets to tell me where the demon came and what happened and what I've been ignoring and what I don't want to look at. And it was brutal and painful and gut-wrenching. And it's three steps forward, two steps back. But ultimately, I had one goal. I wanted to become this woman like that. I had this like imaginary woman on this, you know, I put her on this pedestal because she just felt so unattainable to me. And I was like, I'm going to become her. I want to become her. I'm not going to stop until I become her. I don't know that I will become her, but I have to try because then what's the point of living if you can't become this better version of yourself? I just wanted more and more and more. And um, my scar is sexy is about ownership. The scars that you have, it's, you know, I'm going to backtrack. It's about this. What does it take to not become the imprint of what happened to you? And what happened to you is the scar. Scars are spiritual, they're physical, they're emotional, they're psychological, they're verbal, they're combinations of the both, psycho-spiritual, right? Yeah. And something happened to, ca to cause them, either by a person or an event or by ourselves as individuals. And I want I'm in love with that process of what does it take to not become the imprint of that scar? Because that scar has shaped you, has shaped me, has shapes all of us. We're humans. We are, um, is that the right word, malleable? I don't know. Sometimes I get really lost in translation because English, believe it or not, is not my first language. I was born and raised in Greece. <laughs> and, I still, I <laughs> and I still have moments where I'm like, is that the American word for that? Because I'm like, I can think of the word in Greek, but... We can be shaped is my point. And this is what I really love about working with my clients. I love helping humans transition from the victim mentality to the empowerment of their own self. And by truly believing that their scars are sexy. Now, 
Another disclaimer, sometimes really shitty things happen in life, really bad things, violent things, things that are criminal. And I am by no means saying that those events are sexy, they're vile. However, when those things happened, I wish, believe me, I wish I had a time clock that could go back and erase those events, but I can't. And I have yet to meet somebody that does, nor do I truly believe that that's possible. So we have to keep living after some of these really ugly, catastrophic, scary events happen. And how do we do that, right? So what happened may not be sexy, but who you become because you embraced the scar, the pain, the struggle, moved through it and became a better version of yourself through understanding, compassion, love, forgiveness. Well, that is what I think is sexy. And the scar is part of it. We, if the scar is suppressed, hidden, well, that to me says that you have shame associated with the scar. And guess what? That is 100% a human reaction and a very common reaction, me included. Lots of shame, right? Well, so yeah. I mean, I'm it's important. I'm going to get it's, my scars out now. Right now. <laughs> We're going to talk about your scars in just the, a few. The top, the you top know? is coming off. That's it. The scar yeah. on the bottom left of the abdomen. Yeah. Exactly. There we go. You know, shame prevents you from believing and acting towards your potential because shame will keep you acting towards suppressing the scars. And when you suppress the scars, you suppress yourself and you basically tell yourself, no, 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 because of this or because of this happened, I'm like this and I can't be like this. I can't do it. And I call bullshit on all of that. I really think the human spirit is resilient. Is it easy? No. Is it the same journey for everyone? No. But do you have potential? Can you change your life? Can life change? Can you become better? Yeah. And sometimes it will take your lifetime to attain something and that's okay. There's, you know, we're all like snowflakes. <laughs> we are all like snowflakes. There's, there are no two snowflakes that are the same. So why on earth would we think there are two humans the same? There are no two humans that have had the exact same cell combination and DNA who are having the exact same experience in the exact same moment. Is, so it would be irrational to compare ourselves to others, right? Is, is your coaching as inspirational as your, your chat? I hope so. <laughs> no, but I mean, if, if, if somebody comes to you now and they want coaching from, from you directly, what can yeah. they expect? Yeah, this, you know, this is how I am. Good. I mean, I really love being myself and I'm, pro I'm not the right coach for everybody, but I'm definitely the right coach for people that love direct motivation and most importantly are ready. Like you have to be ready because I'm not going to let you off the hook. I'm going to hold you accountable in the most loving, compassionate way, but I'm going to hold you accountable because guess what? You want me to. You want me to. Yeah. If you call me and you schedule an appointment to chat and then you decide you want to work with me, you want me to hold you accountable because it's what you're struggling with. And if I don't do that for you, I'm not helping you get to where you want to be. You know, I often say to people, I said, I'm not here to make you feel better. 
I am here to help you be better. And when you are better, you will feel better. Very, yeah. I mean, your whole story, Christine, is, is very inspirational. I think anybody listening to this will want to get in touch with you no matter what. Because uh, you've been through, you've been through a lot. A hell of a lot more than most people have been in, uh, in, in, a, in, in a lifetime. I mean, we're going to find out your age eventually anyway, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can get over that we can get over that hurdle very soon so what about the social media side of it i mean where can people get in touch with you i know i mentioned your website there already yeah uh, where where else can they find you yeah i think the best place to find me is on my website which is christinahelena.com i'm also a, a big lover of instagram i just love photos and visuals and i think it's a wonderful platform it's probably the platform that I'm the most active on. So if you go to Instagram, my, what do they call them? My, I, you see, I'm not very great at it. My name on Instagram <laughs> is I am Christina Helena. And then you can also find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Christina Helena. And have you, before we go, have you any advice? Oh, obviously before we, before I ask this question, your cousin is a pilot, isn't he? Yeah, my cousin Stefano. Stefano, hello, Stefano. Yeah, so, hi, Stefano. He's uh, going to be really surprised by this because <laughs> I'm definitely going to send him our episode. So, Stefano, he's Greek as well, is he? Yeah, he's Greek. And uh, he's, where is he working now? Do you know? You know, I need, and shame on me because I need shame to get on. the 411. The 411, because I believe he recently got a new job and right. he's in the skies of Italy. From my understanding, um, he was flying in Greece and also now flying in Italy. So I'm super, super thrilled and excited for him. This is a human being. My cousin is a human being that has a passion for flying that I've never seen in any other pilot. Like, I mean, this guy wants to fly planes and that is all he wants to do. And it's so beautiful to see a human just relish and get to do what they want to do and have worked so hard to get it. So I'm super proud of him, super excited for him. And, you know, I'm a frequent flyer. I love traveling. I know you and I talked a lot about travel spots and I picked your brain about oh, some you of did. your you favorites. <laughs> yeah, I love traveling. It's, um, it's my favorite because I love to meet humans around the world. And, and you're, you're, I mean, let's, let's just embarrass your cousin a little bit more. Um, oh, okay. I mean, he said he loves flying. That's all he wants to do. I mean, yeah. he shouldn't really be telling the cabin crew this because the cabin crew might want to date him. So he has to, <laughs> he has to open up a little bit to kind of like, you know, yeah, I like going out for coffee sometime. I like to go out to a restaurant. So, you know, I think you just need to just tone it down a little bit. Just, That's good advice. Yeah, make out. You know, David, I'm going to put you two in touch. <laughs> <laughs> And I think you can give him some some more advice. I think you might be better suited to give oh, him no, advice. Oh no, no, no! I don't, I don't give good advice when it comes to relationships. No, no, no. Just, <laughs> uh, just, just tell him to open open up a little bit and kind of like you know talk about other stuff other than planes. I think I think the, the ladies like that sometimes. Okay. Um. So, what advice then do you have uh, for any even aviation professionals who may be going through cancer this at this time, mm. or anybody that's going through cancer this time? Yeah. First of all, um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry because I, I, know, I know how difficult it is. And I say that knowing that I had a mild experience of what 
my treatment could have been. It could have been a lot scarier, a lot harder, a lot more difficult. And I know that. So my heart goes out to you and for you. And your mind, what you tell yourself, what you believe can happen is powerful, is extremely powerful. And, you know, people say, oh, you have to stay positive. And, you know, it can be so cliche. Um, but staying positive is different for people, right? You have to know yourself what is positive and what is healthy for you. And you have to be resilient. It's, it's, it's an experience that demands your resilience. And some people may be thinking, you know what, Christina, I'm just not that strong. A lot of people sometimes say, I'm not, I'm, I'm not as strong as you. I could never do it. You think I thought I was that strong? <laughs> <laughs> you think I knew what kind of strength I had in me? There are things I think about in life that could happen to me now, and I'm like, I couldn't go through it. There was no, there's no way I could recover. But the truth is, I don't know that I can, that I could or could not. Because your strength is not something that it has a fine, like, like an end to it. Um, and you don't get to discover it until you need it. So I really wish and I hope for you to believe that you have the strength because it gets birthed in the moment. It truly, truly gets birthed in the moment. And it may not feel this way right now, but this experience has the potential to give you life's best, which is discovery of who you are, a new self, a different understanding of life, the value of life, the value of every minute we have, and how easy it can all be taken away from us. And I, I suspect they will recalibrate how you live once you recover through the treatment, which I really, truly hope you do. Well, all I can say is uh, thank you so much, uh, Christina, for chatting with me today. Um, very inspirational. Um, Give me and I'm sure the listeners a, a greater insight on um, on the journey of somebody that you know has has gone through cancer and and has come out of it in a very positive light. So w well done to you and thanks again for uh, talking with me today on uh, Aviation Night by Aviation Zero. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you, David. It was really a pleasure to uh, speak and laugh with you. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. So thank you so much. No, we'll find out your age. Don't worry. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs>